This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. We are very excited to partner with the Southern Utah Science Cafe out of Dixie State University in St. George, Utah. Today's show is from the Science Cafe and explores the fascinating science of bees, Utah's favorite insect. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Southern Utah Science Cafe. My name is Brady Iverson and I'm here with uh, Dr. Joan Miners local bee biologist and journalist. Uh, Dr. Miners, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, yes, I have a past as a bee scientist, did my PhD on uh, studying native bees at the University of Florida. And I am now an environment reporter at the local uh, paper, the Spectrum and Daily News in St. George. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, I was a bee biologist, transitioned into a journalist over the last few years, and so um, I learned a lot of things about bees, and then now I don't talk about bees very much anymore, but I'm excited to do that today. How did you get so into bees in the first place? Um, I mean, I was like a tree climbing, dirt digging, child leaf collecting, you know, rug rat and collected a lot of insects and bees and like to, you know, kind of pull them apart and see how they were put together after their dad, of course, <laughs> um, you know, not like psychopath stuff, but, you know, just looking at, looking at <laughs> how bees are all put together, you know, when you find them on the ground dead. And, uh, and then I actually ended up doing my eighth grade science fair project on bees after I wrote a paper on bees. And so there's a little bit of a thread there of an interest, a lifelong interest in bees. And so I pursued that all the way through a master's degree and a PhD. And so I guess you could, you could kind of say that my passion for bees led me very far down the academic path. And then, you know, I kind of got to the end of that path and realized, you know, I do love bees, but I, I don't want to do this as a job. <laughs> so then I mo shifted kind of into journalism. So did you, I mean, did you ever stray into other entomology or was it mostly just the love for bees purely all the way through? Um, I mean, my degree is in ecology, not entomology. So I don't, I don't refer to myself as an entomologist. I do have a box of pinned insects in my freezer. So maybe other people would think that that yeah. qualifies you as Me a general too. entomologist. I've got a box too. Awesome. I've got jars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. Um, okay. So I was hoping we could just go through like a cast of local characters, local pollinators, bees. Yeah. Uh, do you know how many species there are oh, in the world? <laughs> I read it this week. I like uh, having people guess. It's like thousands, right? Like There's somewhere between 20 and 30,000 species of bees in oh. the world. Um, probably a lot yet to be described that are really rare and only occur in very localized little patches of habitat. Um, a lot of them are really tiny, so... There's a lot yet to be known about bees, um, but there are at least 20,000 described species across the world. Wow. So uh, many, many to talk about. Do you have <laughs> any favorites that live in our local area, the Mojave Desert, St. George, Southern Utah area? So most of the research I did was in California, mm -hmm. um, and there there's some overlap with the, the bees there and the the bees here. One of my favorite is a species called Diadesia rinconis. I have actually a tattoo of it on my arm, which you can't see because I'm wearing long sleeves, but 
I like that one. It's very cute and fuzzy. Uh, does he have a common name or is she? It, um, it's they? a cactus bee, but you know, it's a cactus specialist. Most of these 20, I mean, nobody bothered to name 20,000 different species of bees in the world. So most of them don't have common names. Um, so we do talk in Latin most of the time when we're talking about native bee biology. Um, but that one is a cactus specialist, only visits cactus um, in obviously dry desert areas. Um, and it's just really cute and fuzzy and it's rare. So it was kind of a, a fun find for me. So Brady, Utah is the beehive state. Why is that? Well, apparently the early pioneers recognized the bee is a master of industry as far as the insect world goes. And that is the state slogan. I don't know which came first. Yeah, the state motto is industry and European honeybees are really industrious. Uh, Utah is not alone in having the European honeybee as their state insect, though. No, in fact, um, something like 19 states features the European honeybee as a state insect. Yeah, but there are also a lot of weird made-up categories. Alabama, for instance, has the queen European honeybee, so just like one individual, I guess, as the state agricultural insect. It's not the state insect because that's the monarch butterfly. The monarch butterfly is not the state butterfly in Alabama. That's the eastern tiger swallowtail. So that's kind of made up and a little bit confusing and probably doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on the diversity of insects in that state. How does Utah hold up in terms of bee diversity compared to other states? Well, Steven Stanko, an etymologist from the Utah Department of Agriculture and Food, said that Utah is home to more than 1,200 species of and in fact, the southern half of Utah has as many native species as the entire eastern half of North America, east of the Mississippi. Yeah, Utah is number one in terms of bee diversity in all of the United States. And uh, 1,200 is kind of a large number. I have seen at least 900 named, described species of bees and at least 660 in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument alone. And there are clearly more than that. They just haven't been discovered yet. There was a newly described sandstone drilling bee that was uh, described just a couple of years ago. Yeah, called Anthophora Pueblo, named after the, the Pueblo Native Americans who also carved their cities and homes into the sides of the sandstone. It comes with pros and cons. It wears down mandibles, but it provides a lot more safety for their young. And they get to reuse their homes each year instead of having to bore a new one out of a new rotting log every every season yeah they can kind of even be a form of generational wealth i, I guess because uh other bees can use uh burrows that are decades old much older than the bees themselves can get they also have to nest near water because they kind of need to uh bring water to the sandstone to dig in so let's get back to dr miners when i started grad school um they sent me right out into the field. I didn't really have any coursework ahead of time. So the first thing I did as a new grad student was get shipped off to California where I was handed a bee net and told to like go discover the bee biodiversity of this national park in California. And I did not know very much about native bees yet. I mean, I had this background of being interested in bees as a kid, but I, I didn't know specific species and they all kind of 
just looked the same while they were flying by really fast and I was trying to catch them and failing and practicing, you know. Um, so I started coming up with all these names for them during my first field season where I was like, that's the crazy eyed bee and that's <laughs> the, you know, the mohawk bee and that's the Morse code bee. There's a bee anthidium that, you know, now I know the Latin names, but uh, at the time I didn't, so I called it the Morse code bee because it has kind of like a dash, dot, dot, dash pattern on its Wild. abdomen. So things like that. Sometimes it's more fun to describe the bees in those terms than in Latin names that don't mean anything to anyone. So that's a perfect segue, actually. I was kind of very interested in your work in Pinnacles National Park. Um, how, why is that place such a bee hotspot? Like, like why are there so many types of local pollinators or so much variety? I mean, yeah. Um, so one of my chapters for my dissertation is trying to answer that exact question. And what we concluded was, so first of all, there are 450 species of bees Jeez. in Pinnacles National Park, which is pretty small. Um, it's really six by six miles kind of area you can walk across the whole thing in a day um and so it's astonishing that there are that many species of bees all cohabiting in that area and the reason that we so i you know spent two years uh going to all different types of habitats across the park and sampling the bees that were there and uh recording data about the the habitats themselves to try to tease apart kind of which ones are the most important for bee biodiversity. And actually, it's a very kind of mosaic habitat where there's a lot of different types of vegetation and soil types and wildflower compositions that all kind of alternate in these like patches because um, there's a there's an elevational gradient. So you have to hike from the west to the east side. You go up, up, up and over this big ridge that you know, gives you some elevational differences and some different flower species because of that. It's also on a couple fault lines, Pinnacles is. So the idea there is that, you know, some of these plates shifted over time and brought together kind of different soil types that then more different soil types than might exist in an area where, you know, the ground, the plates weren't shifting into you know, against each other at that spot. So, and it's right at the, it's kind of right at the transition zone from Northern California flora to Southern California flora. So basically there's just a whole lot going on with the plants and soil. And so then there's a whole lot going on with the bees. That makes sense. Just a lot of uh, diversity in general everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about. Yep. Did I read that you guys discovered 48 new species on that, in that project? Yeah. How how do you even decide it is a new species? Like, what's that <laughs> process like? That must have, sounds so arduous. <laughs> yes, and that is not my area. Um, so I worked in a lab that is um, focused on systematics, which is you know kind of the fancy word for what we all think of as taxonomy, um, where systematics is you know there the systematists are the ones who decide um, when a new species is a new species or when two species that were previously different species need to be lumped into one species because that person who separated them was wrong. And so it's this whole ongoing thing where they're, they're splitting species into two species, one species and two species are lumping. And it's, you know, it's a interesting like dynamic because it's, we think of species as being these very distinct categories. You know, when you learn 
in your biology class about species. We just talk about them as these kind of units. Um, and we don't really talk about it all being on like an evolutionary spectrum where somebody has to draw a line somewhere and say, you know, this is now different from this. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of what uh, systematics is. I didn't do that part of the project. Um, I did the, you know, ecological analysis. You're out there catching bees, doing the fun stuff. Or at least in my opinion, the more fun stuff, I don't know. Yeah, and then and then cataloging all the data and, and analyzing like differences between habitats and species composition and stuff. So is more like macro scale, like zoomed out, looking at kind of big picture patterns rather than, you know, the other end of that is the systematics where you're looking at a microscope all day. Is Pinnacles where you did the studies on what bees do without flowers? Yeah. Or I love that. Oh, thanks. How, uh, so just, I guess, what do bees do when there's no flowers? Well, like in, in this one instance, um, so I mentioned being a brand new grad student that was sh shipped off to California to, you know, figure out what's going on with the bees. And um, it was February when we started. And so I had a couple weeks, this was on purpose. I had a couple weeks before really anything was blooming to try to set up my plots and figure out what my what my protocol was going to be and kind of hone my bee catching skills because we did catch many tens of thousands of bees by hand. Um, and so, you know, I was out there wandering around these kind of dreary, cold landscapes where nothing is blooming, but I was still seeing bees. And so kind of confused as to what was going on and found that in this particular case, uh, the bees were actually accessing honeydew, which is a secretion by another kind of insect called a scale insect that kind of attaches to plants and sucks out the, the fluid from plants, processes, kind of takes the nutrients it wants, and then excretes this uh, sugary liquid that, you know, sometimes uh, a lot of people have heard of ants and aphids and that kind of mutualism that's based on honeydew scale insects also produce honeydew and so the bees were were finding this honeydew which i thought was fascinating for a lot of reasons because first of all why are the bees out before the flowers are out and that that could be a climate change thing um, and then second of all how how are they finding this if the whole our whole concept of the reason why flowers spend all of this energy producing these showy petals and colors and why wildflowers are beautiful is theoretically to attract pollinators. But if pollinators can find sugar, that's not at all advertised by any of those things. And like what's going on. That's baffled me all week, honestly. Like <laughs> I've, it's been since I read it, what probably last weekend it's been living in my head. Oh, awesome. Free. It was one just, of those things that just started as kind of a side Project. Like I was just curious about this thing and then it sort of took over my life for a little while <laughs> doing that project. Did you ever come to a solid hypothesis as to how they find it? Is yeah. It yeah. So I think we called it, it's been a while since I read that paper, but I think we called it uh, social eavesdropping. So yeah, that um, is what you called it. Yeah. So, and that was, a, you know, kind of a new thing for that we were talking about. So I was really excited about this aspect of the paper is that this was the first documentation of solitary bees using information from at, like having some kind of social interaction with other bees in in their foraging pursuits. So they're, 
you know, our hypothesis, which was based on a few different analyses, was that one bee is flying through the habitat, finds this honeydew by chance, and then its activity around that plant attracts other bees. And these are all solitary species that aren't known to interact with other bees at all. So it was really interesting. But then when you when you start to get a couple bees on a plant, then all of a sudden you get a lot more. So it kind of supports that idea of social eavesdropping that you're 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 a solitary species, but you're noticing what other insects are doing when you're out looking desperately for sugars because there's no flowers. So so like a little, an area gets a little bit of attention and that just starts to snowball on a kind of pheromones and smells mostly or sight do you think? I mean we weren't able to I guess the, we weren't yeah. able to test that but no. it could be either I th- I think that's just so amazing still didn't mold have to do something to do with that Yeah so um <laughs> this product is kind of a fun example of just how science starts as one thing and turns into something totally different and a lot of really cool you know findings were not the questions that were originally asked. Um, So I originally called this, you know, my moldy plant study because uh, after these scale insects secrete the honeydew and it kind of runs onto the branches of the plant, then, um, and this is, these were chemise plants. They were not flowering at the time. They're these big kind of like woody shrubs and that's Mm -hmm. the plant that we were looking at that these scale insects were on, the honeydew runs onto the branches and then it's just sugar in the habitat on the branches. So the honeydew molds and it's black. So the first thing I noticed was, you know, I thought at first that these bees were somehow collecting this mold. And, you know, there's other insects that are known to do things like that, um, farm fungus and stuff. So I was like, well, that would be insane if I found, you know, native bees farming fungus like it would be so just so, ooh, <laughs> would be really cool so that's, that's kind of what i thought <laughs> we were looking at at first um and so that's that's why i called it kind of the black mold study um but then it turned out we did some experiments where we like sprayed a sugar composition on that that mimicked the honeydew on other plants and then sprayed some with like a black paint to mimic the mold, but without honeydew. And so kind of having different treatments like that allowed us to tease apart what exactly was attracting the bees. And they, it turns out they don't, the presence of mold is not a significant driver of them like going to the plant or it's not anything that they're collecting. So it's just the honeydew. So although many states could use the European honeybee as their state insect, Utah might be the least apt one to do so because we have so many really cool wild bees that are largely solitary, don't have hives, don't have nests, don't have colonies, don't have queens, and they're out there doing a whole lot of work everywhere. Many new ones to be discovered yet. One of our most important agricultural bees in Utah is a is non-honey bee. It's solitary mason bee called the blue orchard bee. Um, and some studies have shown that two mason bees in an orchard can do the same amount of work as 100 honeybees. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. 
newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.